Gumanajiv tar farna folcherov galer quig an shot mekali de erin. Augustatu direct tare se stockt, le speed she gohana braha, Seamus August quiva e florida, o cree lar conamara. Shokwigan on the Echoes of Erin show on Ross FM is part two of the on campus chat with the Brehan lawyer John Biggins and on the Brehan Laws. In part one, we discussed the framework of the legal system of the Brehan Laws, ERICS, which were fines of monetary value and the justice of the bees and in reference to trespass. As it turned out, if the bees did venture into your field and steal your nectar, there was reprisal in the form of a jar of honey. In part two, John and I discuss social privilege status regarding the chief poet and have some fun discussing the status of women, the functions of the chief wife and the myth of Brieg Brachan and women's rights during the Brehan times. If you would like to know more on the Brehan laws, you can subscribe for free to John's website at thebrehanlawyer.com and you can connect with John on Twitter handle at thebrehanlawyer. After the interview, we'll go straight into John's second song request, which is Apple of My Eye by Damien Dempsey. Enjoy part two. Um, another fascinating area um, was in reference to social privilege by law. Mm-hmm. And if you were a poet back in the Brehan Laws, then you had this special privilege. So yeah. I'd like to explore that a little. Yeah. So when uh, poets essentially were um, also known as seers, so, you know, persons of wisdom and um, Again, there's theories as to where the poetic profession emerged from. It may well be the case it also emerged from Druidry as well, uh, ultimately. Were they scholars? They were scholars, absolutely they were scholars, yeah. Um, So they were trained in poetic verse, obviously, and also they had a broader training, uh, and also a training shared by the lawyers in early Ireland too, and the judges, uh, known as philoduct. So this kind of broader... Um, culture of poetry and knowledge, and this. Do lawyers make good poets? They could. They they, <laughs> they had some poetic training, yeah, yeah. and you can see, of course, in the performative aspect of law, even today, how while we might not, if we're sitting in a courtroom, always brand it classic poetry, um, it is a form of storytelling often, and. Uh, there is a rhyme, an internal rhythm and rhyme, if you like, yes. to lawyering even today, as I'm sure you appreciate. I do. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I think that, that's, that's been there through the generations. But these were um, privileged persons in society. They would establish their position over time by custom. And then their position became um, entrenched and recognised in the law tracks. Um, and they had to come to if you like, a settlement with Christianity. So when Christianity arrived and became more embedded, the poetic class came to a settlement and they became Christianized. And so you had this sort of general pot then of learning, uh, which included Christian religion also uh, over time. And the poetic profession lent itself quite well to that as well, because prior to that, it would have been dealing with ideas of prophecy and ideas of, um, you know, maybe not so much prayers, but certainly maybe chanting and these kinds of practices. So 
there was a reconciliation at some point between the poets and ecclesiastics and the dividing line at certain points in time becomes much more blurred. Um, so they were seen as privileged in society or a nemet, a privileged class. Um, amongst the retinue of the king would have been what was known as the Ulf, so the chief poet. And uh, they would have uh, been expected to accompany the king uh, on circuit and to protect them from sorcery, for example. Okay. So there was a... And entertain him, no doubt. And entertain and to word, compose yeah, praise poetry. <laughs> compose praise poetry mainly. And um, yeah, to generally act in support of the king and to also provide advice and wisdom and guidance on challenging circumstances. So coming back to the court scenario from earlier on, um, it looks like in at least some law cases that kings, poets and perhaps bishops sat on certain cases and it looks like the king was flanked by the Ulf, by the chief poet and the chief poet may well have had that role of kind of broadly whispering in the ear of the king um, at the final point of a proclamation of a judgment at least in certain cases that might have been higher profile or involved so higher he, he was persuasive he had influence there it may have may have but cer words. certainly is listed there as uh, one of those that seems to have been seated in courts in certain situations so that would suggest they had an advisory role to the king that was was broad. And they were experts in history, of course, as well, and um, a very broad learning, essentially. Um, so that's why they had this special... They had this exalted status, yeah, in society. Um, so, yeah, and they themselves had their own retinue as well of people who would follow them around. And they were, you know, they maintained a certain number of people around them at all times. An and entourage. An entourage, thank you, yeah. an entourage. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, if, if you... Um, committed offences against um, poets certainly the the Ullup, the chief poet you know you could be in for some very significant fines um, yeah for that so these were these were highly privileged regarded peoples in society yeah. and if if the poet then charged uh, too much for a poem for example their writings or if they uh, said something uh, you know, and slandered another individual. Was there penalties there for that particular poet? Yeah, absolutely. So coming back to our earlier conversation about sort of ranking and honour in society, there would have been penalties payable um, in those circumstances, depending on the circumstances of the utterance and um, the situation concerned. So there would have been maybe honour price payable to the person who's been wronged. Um, Potentially in, in very serious situations, it might call into question the poet's standing in the community. And we do also see this as well with judges, that if, for example, a judge only heard one side of a case, they could be at risk of being defrocked, shall we say, um, in the community. So there was this concept of checks and balances as well. It wasn't totally free reign. That being said, there is a sense from the law tracks that it was probably challenging enough to enforce your grievances against higher-ranking members of the community uh, precisely because of their high stature. So, you know, it may well have spoken, the laws may well have spoken to penalties uh, in those situations, but the higher your rank, the more difficult it may well have been. And it's possible that some other mechanisms might have been used to try and get justice. And we do get, in some circumstances, for higher-class people, um, certainly in reference to kings who might not have met their obligations the idea of hunger strikes essentially of fasting um, outside the premises 
uh, to try and bring them to recognise their obligations. So you may well have had these other mechanisms as well that may have played in in the event of a problem recovering um, what you felt you were owed. Um, and then more generally, when we talk about sort of uh, poetry and, and the different elements to it, there was a praise poetry aspect to it, uh, as I mentioned. So the Olive, for example, would have a key role in uh, bigging up, essentially, their patron, uh, a king or a chief. Um, and equally, if they went unpaid, if the king or the chief was retaining funds or, or, or uh, payments, shall we say, um, then the uh, poet themselves might then initiate a procedure uh, which is known as the trefical. So, in other words, um, sort of a warning procedure that if they didn't make good the, the yeah. what was due, yeah. uh, that uh, they would satirise them. And there was a warning procedure for this. So the poet didn't necessarily immediately embark on a satire. There was a, an advance warning procedure. Um, and then when it comes to satire generally, satire was a mechanism for accountability in the community. So satire being essentially um, uh, statements or narratives or poems about people. And when they were justified, that was fine. When they were well-founded, that was a reasonable check in the community. But where they were not well-founded, um, then you're back into fines uh, for unjustified or illegal satire. So having overstepped the boundaries. And then within this is a further tension whereby the poets uh, were concerned to maintain their exalted position in society. And they didn't like anybody else talking in the community uh, to the same extent. Um, and so there was a lesser class of um, rhymers, if you like, or people who had elements maybe of poetic training known as the bards and um, the filler, if you like, the, the poets, the, the real poets in inverted commas, yes. took issue often with these uh, lower classes of, of versifiers essentially and even uh, more issue was taken with other people in the community who had very little or no training in the poetic arts engaging in essentially gossipy talk and that was known as concha. So, okay, I just I had this vision of, of the Joker come to mind, you yeah. know, a, a court Joker or something. So maybe they were less, less than you know, um, our chief poet. Yeah, and they were allowed to sort of entertain the crowd. Absolutely, um, um, there, there was some of that. Surely, with their jokes or malarkey, let's just say. Entertainment <laughs> was surely part of it, but uh, in this honor obsessed society, uh, the smallest slight. And especially in a more intimate, tight-knit community, that would have been pretty serious. And, um, you know, interestingly as well, there were other aspects to satire in early Ireland. And they've come up for consideration even in modern law reform. You know, there was an idea that you could satirise the dead. That people who were dead also might might be the subject of a satire. And that it was a pro... speak evil of the dead. Basically, and that their surviving relatives should be enabled where this was inappropriate to um, pursue that issue and so this concept of defaming the dead if you like that's been a hot topic in more recent um, debates around defamation and so on as well mm. so this idea of reputation living on and the reputation of your family and your family having an interest in your reputation and so on um, very much uh, core there as well Okay, fascinating stuff, John. I'm absolutely fascinated by this. And I know the listeners of the Echoes of Erin show will be too. We just have one more final question yes. for you, if that's okay. Of course. 
and um, I have to speak about um, Breach Brahak. Um, you, you say to me that she may have been a myth. I don't like to think that she was a myth um, because uh, this this woman was uh, made some famous rulings on women's rights. That's right. So um, I think before we get into it in detail, let's take a quick step back, which okay. is to the earlier conversation about the position of women, which we touched on briefly, but just to expand a bit further. So it is the case that when we look at myth and lore around Ireland and Irish history, that we might get the impression that women in early Ireland were in a very positive position, legally speaking, that we would nearly think maybe there was women's equality, essentially, in early Ireland. The picture is a lot more complex, certainly if we look at the laws. So notwithstanding that we do have these powerful female figures, for example, in myth and the likes of Queen Maeve in Antoine, or um, other examples like that, or, you know, we even have historical figures like Grand Wee, um, Grace O'Malley, um, later on, actual figures who did manage to establish independent positions. In general, it looks like that was the exception rather than the rule. Okay. And that, um, in the main, um, w- women were not on a plane of equality with, with men uh, in medieval Ireland. Uh, and of course, maybe some might argue even today, right? So I leave that out there. I leave that out there. I hope they weren't chattels. Not, not, <laughs> not, not chattels as such. Um, but there were aspects of early Ireland, for example, polygamy. So in early Ireland, a man could have more than one wife. And there were multiple grades of wife, essentially. And so. Okay. Coming back to your uh, multiple grades. Coming life. back, coming back to your Sorry. yeah. <laughs> coming back to your query How does that earlier. Work? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Coming back to your query earlier on about you know dowries and so on. The, the the reason it was somewhat complicated as well is that because these different categories and different property rights and interests that came with the categories, the settlements varied depending on that and. Um, so you would have, for example, in some cases, a chief wife, Kate Muncher, and then you might have a second... Which would she have all the babies? Is uh, that it? She, she was... Not necessarily. Okay. Not necessarily. She, she might not. In fact, a man might enter into a second marriage precisely because the chief wife may have issues, yeah. or he may have issues, but he may not know that. She may not have had a son. I, indeed. Well, it could be. And he may enter into a second relationship, and this became known as the adultruck. So... You can kind of Grace, get, we're getting there. You see, so you can get the whiff of adultery, yes. the Christianized aspect probably from that. Mm. Um, the church wasn't mass- massively virtues. pleased with this. Um, but at first, the church, at first the church, funny enough, in, in early Ireland, and given the way the church itself was structured and early practices, it was tolerated for quite a time. Uh, it wasn't until maybe a bit later on that the church took a firmer stand on this. Of course, the men were in charge. Right. Um <laughs> But the reason I say all this is because in these lesser forms of, of marriage especially, the position of the women was quite precarious. And um, some marriages might only last for a year. They might go year to year uh, or even less. And it might be purely labour arrangements. Now, not that the woman was in bondage as such, but that um, it was a mutual agreement that her labour was needed on the land for certain times of the year and they would be temporarily, temporarily married for that period of the year. Um, so, so there's all kinds of complexities basically around it uh, that being said though as we also I think talked slightly before uh, the recording about 
the issue of divorce in early Ireland. Yes. Uh, and it is the case that there were also, though, side by side with these qualifications I've mentioned, there were reasonably liberal provisions on divorce at the same time. So you could divorce your spouse for a broad range of uh, reasons, some of which might seem reasonably trivial today. Um, a lot of it was to do with um, usually sexual or fertility issues, you know, was, was typically a, a problem uh, when it came to divorce. Or if he was a philanderer. I read. Uh, could be, absolutely, mm-hmm. could be. And also, if uh, there was a protection for women there around, if the man was excessively violent to the woman as well, um, there was a ground for divorce. So there's no doubt there were divorce laws there. But again, we don't fully know on the ground to what extent, A, they were used, at what levels in society they were used. Were they more prevalent at the upper echelons in the higher class levels? Um, and also, we're not 100% sure these always worked out to the woman's benefit. Because, again, women were usually under the um, guardianship of a man in their lives, whether it be their husband, their brother, or their father. Uh, getting a divorce might not necessarily have left them in a favourable position uh, afterwards either. So, it's not very black and white, basically. Um, okay. But the fact those provisions existed is relevant and something to bear in mind. And 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 speaking about breeds... So coming back... Yes. What did this lady supposedly do? So with, with those qualifications in mind around the position of women in society and so on, um, Brieg, the Brieg figure uh, in the law tracks, um, Brieg of the judgments, if you like, it looks like this is a variant of a Brieg that traces its roots probably to pre-Christianity to a, um, a venerated seer um, maybe goddess perhaps but something to that effect right and the poets in particular uh, venerated this female seer uh, it looks like in pre-Christian Ireland she was good with words and they said we like that now <laughs> what lies behind that mm-hmm. maybe who knows Right, there may have been a historical woman figure who lies behind that, but in any case, that's the explanation given in a glossary okay. uh, that refers to Brieg. And there's also um, very anecdotal evidence from uh, an adventurer uh, from, I think, the 11th or 12th century that refers to this um, cult of Brieg, and that there were uh, there was an oak tree in her honour in Kildare and a perpetual fire that was kept lit where? in her honour in Kildare. Exactly where, of, I'm not sure. The it grounds of Anuti University, I want to find it. In Kildare, and uh, that a number of versions attended this fire. But there we're also hearing echoes of things that we would hear from the continent as well. Yes. Similar um, types of uh, narratives uh, from the continent, from ancient Rome and so on as well. So there may well be that, that cross-fertilisation of ideas in the figure. And of course, the reference to Kildare as well brings us potentially up to an interaction with potentially... There'll be an the, entourage coming Christ- into Kildare looking for this oak tree. Exactly. <laughs> the Christianised... Yeah, the Christianised bridge as well may well be looming here somewhere when it comes to Kildare. But in any case, um, from that then seems to have sprung a few different um, bridges, if you like. Um, and one of which is this bridge of the judgments. And... She's deployed in the law tracks, uh, variably as either the sister or the daughter of a mythological jurist or chief poet, uh, Shanka. 
and Shanka itself being sort of a a root of the word for wisdom or mm. tradition, right? So, yes. And the way um, Brieg is deployed in the law tracks, the the figure of Brieg is the tro- is uh, deployed is that um, at some point it looks like drafters of the law manuscripts uh, felt the need to provide for specific rules and clarifications for how women would recover certain legal rights uh, that differed from the standard procedures that men would use. And so it looks like Brieg was used in this story as a corrective to Shanka. So Shanka in this story uh, proclaims that the procedure should be X, Y, and Z for women to recover their position and he's corrected by Brieg so Brieg says no there's a specific procedure so for, for women so for a man to be corrected by a woman right so but but bearing in mind in a way it's emphasising a difference in legal procedures okay so an example being there was a process in early Ireland for essentially laying claim to land that you felt was being wrongly held by somebody else that was your land and there was an elaborate, almost ritual whereby uh, in the traditional normal course if you were a man making the claim, you would pass over an ancient grave mound that might uh, border the land in question uh, maybe of your ancestors and you would bring uh, two uh, horses onto the land at first and then you would give a period of time for the person concerned to come to terms with this, either to acknowledge your claim or to contest it or come to court, whatever it might be. Uh, if they fail to respond, there'll be then a further procedure whereby you bring more horses on the land. They then might start grazing on the land. A further stay procedure. thinking of something there. A stay procedure, yeah. Uh, and again, a warning, a further warning. And then failing that again, no response. Then you will come back onto the land with extra horses. And uh, you would enter the house, light the fire, and You've so on. You've moved in. You've moved back in, essentially. So you have laid full claim back to the land. So there was this progressive procedure yeah. for um, claiming land that you felt was yours. So it has echoes of things we know today in the laws, you know, uh, Louise. So the likes of adverse possession, right? Yes. Uh, squatters and so on, right? So there was that kind of echo there. But bringing it back to Brieg... Um, in, in the law tracks, that procedure is adjusted for women. So for a number of practical reasons, uh, women went through a quicker procedure for this, um, involving sheep rather than horses. So they would bring sheep on the land, and there was a reason for that. The reason being that women were more heavily associated with sheep and with the mining of sheep uh, on the farms and um, on the hills during the summertime and so on. So women were very much associated with, with, with that, that form of livestock. So the symbolism and ritual differed for women. And also uh, the final stages differed. So the woman might instead light a fire on the land and bake bread. Of course. That was more so <laughs> her way of, yep. Yep. of laying claim to her entitlement. Now, she again, was the ban on tea then, huh? Right, right. <laughs> but again, so we need to place this into, again, specific contexts, which are... It's a different procedure for men, and for practical reasons, it may well have made sense at that time. 
Um, but also, we can imagine that women claiming land rights may have been reasonably rare in the sense that, as I mentioned earlier on, land was typically distributed between surviving sons. Yes. So it would usually only be where there was no surviving son and there was a female inheritor of the land. Worthy enough. Well, or that she, that she had been assigned the land by her, ah. by her father. Mm. Now, mm. women, again, would only be assigned the land usually for their life. It wasn't a perpetual thing as such. Uh, there were complications. But bottom line being, we think that this may well have been a reasonably rare, in comparison to men, uh, yes. procedure on the land. Uh, and, but where it did occur, there were specifics for women. And so again, the function of, of Brieg of the Judgments here is to emphasise these... Um, women's rights. Women's rights in a particular context. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah, it's been really fascinating speaking to you, John. Um, we have to have you back. Thank you very much. <laughs> because there's so much more I want to know. Um, but uh, for now, thank you so much. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure to Thank be you here today much. and to have this conversation with you. And I hope uh, my audience appreciates it. Go on, Margaret. Cool. Very welcome. Uh, just to say, we are kindly sponsored by Crean's Painting and Decorators in Roscommon here. And do not forget that you can catch up on all interviews on Ross FM on Spotify. And you can contact the show on telephone 090 text WhatsApp on 083-8599-748 or email info at rossfm.ie. Have a great weekend and slán.